welcome to Osteopathy Unplugged. I'm Steve Paulus Dio. And I'm Bonnie Gintis Dio. We're American osteopathic physicians, and we're a married couple devoted to the practice and the study of osteopathic medicine. Join us as we sit in conversation talking about the inner and outer workings of osteopathy. Steve has been studying, researching, and interpreting osteopathic history, as well as the history of 19th century allopathic medicine for more than 25 years. We begin this episode by having Steve set the context for the story of this first osteopathic treatment. Then I'll read the story to you after you have an understanding of the language he used and the setting in which the story takes place. This podcast will be the first in a series of episodes exploring key historical components of the osteopathic experience. We will present momentous historical events that shaped the early development of osteopathy. We know that understanding our traditions will give you a better appreciation of who we are as a healthcare profession and why we are remarkable. Our first episode in this series is the presentation of the epic first osteopathic treatment, which took place in Macon, Missouri in the autumn of 1874. Before Bonnie presents the incredible story of the first osteopathic treatment, I need to give you the historical background of important events leading up to this very interesting medical and osteopathic case history. Andrew Taylor still stated retrospectively that he unfurled the banner of osteopathy on June 22, 1874. Many consider this the birth date of osteopathy. On that date, still had an inspiration and saw a different and better way to practice medicine and then spent the next 18 years developing and fine-tuning the system we now call osteopathy. Eventually, he established the first school of osteopathy in 1892 in Kirksville, Missouri. Before we get to the events of 1874, I need to lay some important historical foundations. Still fought in the Civil War as a Kansas militia officer from 1862 until the end of 1864. He never served in the Union Army as a physician or surgeon. He was a combat officer. Major Still served the majority of the Civil War in eastern Kansas with his militia unit assigned to defend the Kansas portion of the Santa Fe Trail and to guard the Kansas-Missouri border from guerrilla raids by small bands of Confederate soldiers. Still spent most of his Civil War service within 50 miles of home and was able to maintain his farm and medical practice during the entire Civil War. And during the war, he offered medical care for his local civilian patients as well as fellow soldiers in the militia. During the Civil War, in the late winter of 1864, Andrew Taylor Still's life was rocked, and the cause was not due to the carnage of the Civil War. Three of Still's children died of spinal meningitis, all within two weeks' time. Several weeks later, a fourth child died of pneumonia. Major Still was devastated later writing that his heart was, and I quote, torn and lacerated with grief. Mm. He later revealed, and I quote, the war had been very merciful to me compared with this foe. The war had left my family unharmed, but when the dark wings of spinal meningitis hovered over the land, it seemed to select my loved ones for its prey. The doctors came to the house and treated his children and still acknowledged that they offered their most trustworthy remedies. But the medical treatments failed, and his children died. In the mid-1800s, if you didn't die from a disease, you died from the treatment. There were no antibiotics, 
and the medicines of the time consisted of bloodletting, powerful gut purgatives and astringents, skin blistering, mercury-based compounds, arsenic, high doses of narcotics, the use of alcohol as a prescription drug, and other extremely toxic treatments. Still's time for grieving was brief because his militia unit was then transferred to the front lines of the Western Theater in the fall of 1864. His unit fought against the Confederate Army in the bloody Battle of Westport in western Missouri, known as the Gettysburg of the West, and Major Still suffered a serious ruptured inguinal hernia during battle. This injury was severe enough that he was no longer able to do the heavy labor or work required of a farmer, and out of necessity, he devoted more time to his duties as a physician. Following the defeat of the Confederate forces in the Battle of Westport, Still's unit, the 21st Kansas Militia, was disbanded and the soldiers returned home to civilian life. The war was not formally over until November 1865. Still was a Union soldier fighting for a great cause, the end of slavery, while at the same time he was a father and a doctor fighting for a personal cause, saving the lives of his children suffering from spinal meningitis and pneumonia. He succeeded in helping to end slavery, and he failed in safeguarding his children. For still, the loss of his four children in such a short interval created a crisis of spirit and a professional paradox. The doctors who treated his children were his friends, and he believed that they did the best that they could based upon the standard medical practices of the time. He didn't blame the doctors personally, but from this moment on, he began to question the medical infrastructure of that time and doubted the utility of using unnatural substances on or in the body. Once the Civil War formally ended in 1865, he began to diligently explore other methods of healing. After the war, still briefly attended the Kansas City School of Physicians and Surgeons. Kansas City was about 45 miles from his home in Baldwin, Kansas. He never completed the course of study at this medical school. We can only speculate as to why Dr. Still attended a regular allopathic medical school so soon following the deaths of his children, especially when orthodox medicine had failed. I have a theory. Perhaps he felt as though he needed more education or better allopathic training as a physician. Perhaps he thought that getting an organized education with a degree might have enhanced his apprentice-based medical education. In the mid-1800s, there was only two ways to become a physician. One was to attend a formal medical school, and the other was to apprentice with one or more physicians and learn informally. At that time in America, there were very few high-quality medical schools. Most American medical schools were part-time, and students attended for only one or two years, and the curriculum was terribly substandard by the metrics of the elite medical schools in Philadelphia, New York, London, Paris, and Berlin. Prior to the Civil War, nearly 70% of all doctors in America were trained by the apprenticeship system. The admirable plan to attend medical school obviously failed, still revealed that he never completed the course of study. I theorize that he became disappointed with the poor quality of the teachings at this school, and he increasingly became disgusted with the 19th century allopathic medical approach to the treatment of diseases. I suggest that he didn't find what he was looking for at the Kansas City School of Physicians and Surgeons. They could not, 
and did not offer an answer as to why his children died or how they could have been treated medically and saved. In 1836, magnetic healing was introduced into America by the French lecturer Charles Poyen. This alternative form of healing spread rapidly through the United States, and sometime in the late 1860s still began exploring magnetic healing. In 1874, still advertised in a newspaper, the North Missouri Register, as A.T. Still, Magnetic Healer. At some point between 1865 and 1874, Still not only studied, but he practiced magnetic healing and gained some clinical skills using this atypical way to treat disease. We also know that Still studied bone setting while living in Kansas. Bone setting was a form of joint manipulation and treatment of musculoskeletal diseases that dates back to ancient times. Nearly every culture in every country throughout the world, including indigenous cultures, had some form of bone setters. Bone setters were not doctors. Bone setters were either self-taught or their skills were passed on from generation to generation, creating families of bone setters. In the 18th and 19th centuries in rural United States, itinerant bone setters traveled throughout the countryside treating patients with bone and joint disorders. Before he coined the name osteopathy in the late 1880s, he referred to himself as A.T. Still, Lightning Bone Setter. He traveled throughout Missouri and Kansas practicing as an itinerant physician and bone setter before finally settling in Kirksville, Missouri. I believe that the birth of osteopathy began in 1864 when Still's children died and he suffered immense grief and an existential crisis. That moment of personal crisis was his inspiration. His personal loss was the motivation for the development of osteopathy. Between 1864 and 1874, he studied and searched for a better way to practice medicine. He experimented with the healing arts of magnetic healing combined with bone setting. The first osteopathic treatment in the fall of 1874 was his earliest documented success with what he later called osteopathy. What I'm trying to reveal here is that Still did not gain the skills of osteopathy instantly with some prophetic vision with all of osteopathy revealed in one moment. Osteopathy did not fall from the sky and hit Still in the head. Osteopathy did not enter his consciousness fully formed. It was a process. He worked it. He considered deeply. He studied extensively. He was a voracious autodidact. He experimented again and again and again. He then had an aha moment or that eureka moment when his divergent and emerging ideas on health and medicine came together. But it was really hard work and an open mind that led to that key moment of insight on June 22nd, 1874. Then, in the autumn of 1874, his ideas and insights led to a transformational experience that is revealed in the case history we call the first osteopathic treatment. I need to offer a few more historical details to set the context before Bonnie reads this case history. In this first osteopathic treatment, Still successfully treated a four-year-old boy with flux. Flux is the older name for what we now call gastroenteritis. In this case history, bloody flux is infectious hemorrhagic gastroenteritis. The boy in this story, 
is wearing a calico dress. Calico fabric in the 1800s was made of roughly woven cotton that is unbleached and half-processed. It was generally undyed and often homespun. It was made and used mostly by the very poor. At the time of this story, Still was living in Baldwin, Kansas. He was visiting Macon, Missouri, which is 190 miles from Baldwin. He was in Missouri with his friend Colonel Eberman, who we assume was a close friend from the Civil War and fellow veteran who fought against the Confederates in Kansas and Missouri. This case history takes place in 1874, 10 years after the rapid deaths of his three children from meningitis and a fourth child from pneumonia. Now, let me introduce to you the first osteopathic treatment. It was initially recorded in the autobiography of A.T. Still in the first edition in 1897. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for setting the context for the epic story of this first treatment. If you'd like a copy of the story, there's a PDF file of it available in the show notes and on the Osteopathy Unplugged website. Click on the Documents tab. So here is the story as written by Andrew Taylor Still, and I quote, During the autumn, I had an excellent opportunity to test osteopathy on fall diseases, such as flux amongst children bowel complaints, and fevers. My first case of flux was a little boy of about four summers. I was walking down the streets of Macon in company with a Colonel Eberman. When I drew his attention to fresh blood which had dripped along the street for 50 yards, a little in advance of us was a lady and two or three children moving slowly in the same direction we were going. We soon caught up with them and discovered that her little boy, about four years old, was very sick. He had only a calico dress on, and to our wonder and surprise, his legs and feet, which were bare, were covered with blood from his body down to the ground. A single glance was sufficient to convince us that they were poor, and the colonel and I, feeling a wave of pity in our hearts, spoke gently to the mother and offered our aid to get her sick children home. She accepted, I picked up the boy while Colonel took one from the mother's arms that she had carried until she was almost exhausted. I placed my hand on the back of the little fellow I carried in the region of the lumbar, which was very warm, even hot, while the abdomen was cold. My only thought was to help the woman and her children home, and little did I dream that I was about to make a discovery that would bless future generations." While walking along, I thought it strange that the back was so hot and the belly so cold. Then the neck and the back of his head were warm and the face, nose, and forehead cold. I began to reason, for I knew very little about flux, other than it killed young and old and was worse in Kentucky in warm weather than in some other states. In all my life, I had never asked myself what flux was. I did not know how to reason on diseases, because all the authorities I had read or met in council could not get their eyes off the effects rather than the cause. They met pain by anti-pain medicines and bleeding of bowels by astringents that closed the tissues from which the blood came, following such remedies to death's door, and then lined up for another battle and defeat with the same old failing remedies, and opened fire all along the line on symptoms only. I wondered why doctors were so badly frightened when flux visited their own families if remedies were to be trusted. I knew that a person had a spinal cord, but really I knew little, if anything, of its use. I had read in anatomy 
that the upper portion of the body was supplied with motor nerves from the front side of the spinal cord and that the back of the cord gave off the sensory nerves. But that gave no very great clue to what to do for flux. I began work at the base of the brain and thought, by pressure and rubbing, I could push some of the hot to the cold places. While doing so, I found rigid and loose places in the muscles and ligaments of the whole spine, while the lumbar in a very congested condition. I worked for a few minutes on that philosophy and told the mother to report to me the next day, and if I could do anything more for her boy, I would cheerfully do so. She came early the next morning with news that her child was well. Flux was in a large percent of the families of Macon. The reader will remember that my home at that time was still in Baldwin, Kansas, and I was only visiting Macon. The lady whose child I had cured brought many people with their sick children to me for treatment. As nearly as I can remember, I had 17 severe cases of flux in a few days and cured them all without drugs. It's difficult for me to read or discuss this story without getting emotional. The first time I came across our origin story as osteopaths, I cried. I reread the story over and over again, taking in the significance of what Still did. I was awestruck by Still's humanity compassion, kindness, and ultimately, his curiosity. Before he carried out what we now call an osteopathic treatment, he did a series of notable and noble actions. He noticed that this mother with two children were poor and in distress. He felt a wave of pity. And this next line is the one that gets to me every time. He spoke gently to the mother. He didn't just speak to her. He spoke gently. He talked her down. He didn't jump in and seize the situation aggressively trying to help. He spoke gently to a fellow human being who was suffering and deathly afraid. When we speak gently to someone who is suffering, it is one of the early stages of healing that precedes the hands-on part of an osteopathic treatment. Oh, Steve, that that is so important. Can you repeat what you just said? When we speak gently to someone who is suffering, it is one of the early stages of healing that precedes the hands-on part of an osteopathic treatment. I get chills when you say that. So what happens next is important. Still then, not only offered to help get her sick children home, he did something else that is totally remarkable. He picked up the four-year-old boy with hemorrhagic gastroenteritis. Now, Dr. Still got bloody diarrhea on his own clothing. Then he made a discovery. Most of the rest of this podcast is going to explore this discovery, his thoughts, his actions, and what we think happened in that first osteopathic treatment. But before we launch into an intellectual analysis, we want to take a moment to acknowledge the emotional impact of his actions of his way of being, to quote ourselves. In a previous episode, titled Osteopathic Ways of Being, we explored some aspects of the inner life of an osteopath, and in this story, we see many of those manifested in Still's actions, beginning with compassion in action. Let's now look at this medical and osteopathic case history in greater depth. Bonnie and I have deconstructed the first osteopathic treatment into six thematic elements, Let me list these features 
and then we will discuss them each individually. The thematic elements are, first, compassion in action, second, anatomy, physiology, and pathophysiology, third, the institutional failure of allopathic medicine, fourth, perceptual skills and attention combined with curiosity, fifth, key treatment and reproducibility, and sixth, osteopathic growth and development. The first thematic element that we would like to explore in greater detail is compassion in action. Take a moment and imagine yourself in the city or town where you live. If you saw a woman walking on the street, holding a baby with one arm and with her other, holding the hand of a boy with bloody diarrhea dripping down his legs, what would you do? How would you react? Would you cross the street to avoid them? Would you offer some form of help? And if you did, what would that help look like? Would you call for some emergency service like an ambulance? Would you give them $20, call a taxi, and just direct them to an urgent care center or a hospital? Can you imagine what it would require to pick up a boy covered in bloody diarrhea? He obviously has a severe contagious disease, and if you picked him up and carried him, You would probably not be wearing personal protective equipment that those of us who work in hospitals or other medical facilities are used to having to protect from exposure to infection. Could you embrace a soiled child without fear of his obvious disease? This is the origin story of osteopathy. The founder of our profession not only reached out to this family in distress, he did something epic. Now, aside from the significant contribution that Andrew Taylor still made as he imagined and then created a whole new approach to healthcare, his actions in this story were compassionate and of epic proportions. Osteopathy is rooted in compassion. And not just compassion as in concern for the suffering of others, but compassion in action, doing something in response to that concern. Having this generous act at the heart of our origin story sets the stage for the future of osteopathy. Today, we study and practice in the tone that was set, in the atmosphere that was established by the first osteopathic treatment, a spirit of kindness, generosity, gentleness, consideration, empathy, concern, benevolence, altruism, and deep caring We are historically rooted in compassion and action so that now, nearly 150 years later, we are still thriving on this powerful foundation. Wow, that was so well said. I think you presented what I believe to be the true moral of this story, compassion in action. The second thematic element is anatomy, physiology, and pathophysiology. Steve, give us some background. Okay, let's talk briefly about the microbiology and public health issues concerning this case history. This child had infectious hemorrhagic gastroenteritis. There are two primary origins of infectious gastroenteritis, bacterial or viral. The bacterial causes of gastroenteritis include E. coli, Salmonella, Shigella, Staph aureus, Campylobacter, Yersinia, Bacillus cereus, Clostridium perfringens, and of course, 
cholera, and typhoid fever, to name the major bacterial causes. While the main viral etiologies include rotavirus, norovirus, adenovirus, astrovirus, and the enteroviruses. Parasitic infections are a lesser consideration in this instance. Most likely, though, this child had a bacterial infection caused by drinking contaminated water, eating spoiled food, or the disease was passed on from child to child. The primary infectious effects for the creation of diarrhea are excessive secretion of fluids from the intestine induced by the action of bacterial toxins, inflammatory or cytotoxic damage of the ileal or colonic mucosa, which may produce blood and pus, or the penetration of the bacteria or viruses through the mucosa into the reticuloendothelial system. These and other potential actions are then accelerated by excitation of the parasympathetic nervous system, causing increased intestinal motility with an attempt to rapidly rid the body of the infection. Diarrheal diseases in children aged less than five years old in developing countries, or in rural Missouri in 1874, was and continues to be utterly devastating. To this day, the number one cause of child and infant mortality in developing countries is infectious gastroenteritis. Repeated diarrheal episodes also contributed greatly to malnutrition, resulting in a depressed immune system and a heightened risk of acquiring additional infections of any kind. In this case, the child was probably febrile, potentially septic, definitely anemic, understandably in electrolyte imbalance, very likely malnourished, and certainly dehydrated. I know that this goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. In 1874 in Missouri, there were no emergency rooms or urgent care centers, no antibiotics, no intravenous fluids, and no oral rehydration solutions. If there was a local hospital, it was reserved for people needing surgery or as a place to die from incurable illnesses. So now I'd like to review the statements that Still made in this story that directly apply to his thought process around the anatomy, the physiology, and the pathophysiology that Steve just described. And I'd like to speculate about what he might have meant and what he might have done in this treatment. Let's begin with Still's first statement about what he did. He said, and I quote, The upper portion of the body was supplied with motor nerves from the front side of the spinal cord, and the back side of the cord gave off the sensory nerves. So he admits in this story that he didn't yet understand the anatomy and physiology of the spinal cord and its range of functions and influences, and that's rather evident from this confusing mixture of terms, upper, front, lower, back. Neither of these statements he made make neuroanatomical sense in the language we use today. He clearly didn't yet understand this complex anatomy and physiology. Was he trying to describe the somatic or the autonomic functions of the areas involved? He implied that his understanding of the somatic nervous system didn't explain his physical exam findings. And in his next statement, he describes what I think is the most interesting observation. And I quote, I placed my hand on the back of the little fellow I carried in the region of the lumbar, which was very warm, even hot, while the abdomen was cold. So let's go over some of the possible explanations for this observation. Perhaps he sensed that the components of the somatic reflex arc of the abdomen coming from the anterior or the ventral efferent motor system was not in functional relationship to the posterior or the dorsal afferent sensory system. 
Or was this observation about an autonomic reflex arc dysfunction? The abdomen might have been cold due to lack of sufficient circulation. Could this have been sympathetic vasoconstriction, making the area seem cold? Or could the presence of a fever have triggered sweating, which made the abdomen seem cool due to heat loss from evaporation of sweat on the skin? He wouldn't have known back in that day in 1874 about things like exogenous and endogenous pyrogens that are present during an infection and act on receptors in the thermoregulatory area of the hypothalamus to cause fever. He just felt the effects of that cascade. It's amazing that he felt that. Did he sense the heat in the lumbar area from the response caused by raging infection or sepsis? Were his physical findings based on the activity of the sympathetic reflex arc at the level of T12 to L2? He didn't comment on the sacrum in the area of the parasympathetics of the large intestine, which would have produced a finding at S2 to S4. And what about his perception of the similar temperature differential from anterior to posterior in the head and neck? He said, and I quote, Then the neck and back of the head were very warm, and the face, nose, and forehead cold. Although he refers to the fact that he examined the entire spine, he didn't comment on the state of specific segmental levels of dysfunction of the spine. The parasympathetics of the head and neck, which involve cranial nerves 3, 7, 9, and 10, would not be responsible for this hot-cold differential that he sensed in the skin. Could the child's hypersympathetic state be a compensatory response to the anemia from blood loss? When you lose a critical volume of blood, one of the many sympathetic compensatory responses is tachycardia. He didn't mention an observation of tachycardia. The constant stream of watery, bloody feces running down the child's legs implied increased intestinal motility, which would partially be due to parasympathetic overactivity or to the presence of blood and toxins in the gut that increase motility due to the irritability of their presence. The combination of blood loss from hemorrhaging, electrolyte loss and imbalance, accompanied by dehydration from fever and increased intestinal motility, could have contributed to his impressions and physical exam findings. Could he have perceived some other effects of malnutrition and dehydration that he didn't comment on? There's evidence in this story of extreme hyperactivity simultaneously in both the sympathetics and the parasympathetics. Clearly, the symptoms that are usually responsible for balance were critically out of balance. Then, what did he mean by, I began work at the base of the brain and thought by pressure and rubbing I could push some of the hot to the cold places. This is quite a simplistic description, but remember how early it is in his development. People often speak condescendingly of osteopathic history because the way things were worded or said in the late 1800s sounds unsophisticated by our 21st century standards. What might he have meant by using the terms rubbing and pressure? Was this an elementary description of a myofascial approach to the somatic elements of a viscerosomatic reflex? still never spoke of working directly on the central nervous system. So we're not sure where he was directing his attention in this treatment when he said, I began work at the base of the brain. Was this a rudimentary form of what was later developed by Sutherland as a CV4? We now know that one of the significant, 
But hard to directly sense responses to osteopathic treatment is an enhanced immune response. Aside from the neuromusculoskeletal explanations I've been proposing, there probably was an immune response to his treatment. Many of my teachers have proposed that osteopathy is not merely a neuromusculoskeletal approach, but a whole body, psycho, neuro, musculoskeletal, gastrointestinal, cardio, respiratory, renal, hormonal, immune approach. And I'm sorry if I left out a body system there. I think you get the idea. Osteopathic treatment is a whole body event. And if you haven't yet embraced the osteopathic concept of connected oneness, please listen to our earlier episodes where we discuss connected oneness in the context of osteopathic philosophy and the principles of treatment. What do we think Dr. Still did in this treatment? Did he use an inhibitory technique using direct action pressure to decrease the overactivity of the sympathetics? And if so, at what segmental level? Could he have used a similar inhibitory approach to the sacrum to decrease the overactivity of the parasympathetics? If he did, he didn't mention it. Did he attend to the brainstem or to the craniocervical junction? Did he work in the area of the cervical ganglia that relays sympathetics to the head and neck? Or did he go straight to T1 to 4, the origin of the sympathetics that contribute to those cervical ganglia? Did his treatment influence the function of T10 to L2, the sympathetic innervation of the intestinal tract? And when he used the terms hot and cold, did he actually mean the perceived temperature of the body, or were these terms that were borrowed from magnetic healing that referred to an energetic perception? The moving of heat by hand placement was an element in the magnetic healing practices of the time. The last thing he commented on in this story is congestion. And I quote, I found rigid and loose places in the muscles and ligaments of the whole spine, while the lumbar was in a very congested condition. This tells us he examined the whole spine. We don't know if he had done this kind of spinal examination before, but we do know that he had enough medical experience at this point in his career that he could tell when he encountered a variation from what he knew the normal state of these tissues should be. What did he mean by rigid and loose places and the term congestion? Was he describing the state of muscles, fascia, tendons, ligaments, and bones, or the state of the tissues, the interstitial fluid in the extracellular tissue spaces due to blood or lymphatic supply and drainage in excess or in a state of depletion? And he noticed something different about the lumbar from the rest of the spine. We don't know if he was at the level of the upper lumbar vertebrae, or the lower towards the sacrum, because neurologically, these two areas would offer very different information. Were these his first thoughts about what we now call the somatovisceral or viscerosomatic reflexes? All we know is that whatever he perceived and responded to, it worked. The child got better, and so did the many other children he treated that week with similar ailments. This was the first inkling he had that osteopathy was reproducible and therefore teachable. He set out on the next part of his life to understand what he found and why and how the boy responded to his treatment. The rest, as they say, is history. Bon, that was a great analysis. Thank you. I just want to add that there are other osteopathic considerations that we could include beyond the major anatomic and physiologic issues that Bonnie reviewed, but she presented the most important osteopathic considerations. 
Also, I would like to add that I am impressed with Still's descriptions of his physical exam findings. His 19th century physical exam skills were impressive. In the 21st century, the physical exam skills of most physicians are terrible and atrophying rapidly. There is a distinct loss of hands-on exam skills by most American physicians. Yeah, they think they can rely on an MRI or a CAT scan. That's a mistake. Yeah, yeah. Osteopaths are experts at the art and skill of physical examination. All right, moving on to the third thematic element of this case history, the institutionalized failure of allopathic medicine. Still didn't know that the true cause of flux was either a bacterial or viral infection. Louis Pasteur had just made his discoveries in the 1850s, and Robert Koch developed the germ theory disease in the 1880s. In 1874, Still did not know of or fully understand infectious diseases. Nobody did. But he did know from firsthand experience as an allopathic physician that the use of purgatives, astringents, blistering, bloodletting, using mercuric chloride and arsenic, as well as high doses of narcotics, did not effectively manage bloody flux, or what we call hemorrhagic gastroenteritis. In fact, he states in the first osteopathic treatment case history that doctors, and I quote, were badly frightened when flux visited their own families. Yeah, for very good reason. After his children died suddenly from meningitis and pneumonia, still began to question. He began the process of doubting the toxic allopathic medical system of the 1800s, It took an incredible amount of courage for Dr. Still to cast doubt upon the rigid system of institutionalized medicine of his times. And he was vilified for his protests against the status quo. He didn't just ruffle the feathers of the medical community. He came up against the rigidity of the theocracy of Baldwin, Kansas. He was kicked out of the Methodist church founded by his father and was ostracized by his friends and neighbors. He and his family were forced to leave Baldwin, and ultimately, they settled in Kirksville, Missouri. His personal and professional crises led him to go on a quest to discover a better way to practice medicine. Please remember that the development of osteopathy was based upon the primary environment of his personal losses combined with the bizarre medical practices of the times. Please remember that taking still out of context of the 19th century and placing him into the context of the 21st century requires an adjustment, and his teachings must be adapted for our times. Finally, please remember that osteopathy has significantly evolved and changed since still last formally taught in the late 1890s. Let's move on to the fourth thematic element of this case history, perceptual skills and attention, combined with curiosity. I love discussing this subject. I think it is so important to acknowledge how Andrew Taylor still trusted what he felt and he responded to what he sensed going on in his his first patient here. The situation he was in is not that different from the situation many of us find ourselves in in an average day in an osteopathic practice. People come to us with a wide variety of situations asking for help. Sometimes what they need is simple, obvious, or straightforward and biomechanical, and other times it's not so obvious, and the best we can do is listen, both verbally and with our hands, and then wait for some important information to come to us so that we can respond. 
Now, although I admit I tend to want to know something if it's knowable, when I put my hands on someone to offer a treatment, I don't always know in advance what's going on. I don't know what's necessary, and I don't know how the treatment is going to unfold. But I am patient, and I wait, and I listen. Osteopaths often get a sensory impression of what needs attention and support, but we can't always describe or explain what we feel while we're feeling it. Sometimes we need to wait until after the treatment to think about it. Like still, we can offer the treatment that unfolds in the moment and think about it later. Because during the treatment, before we get too distracted by our mental activity, we begin to respond. And before we know it or understand it, the person's body responds to our treatment and begins to reorganize. That seems to be what happened in this story. Still trusted what he sensed, trusted what he perceived, and before he understood the boy's illness or how or why it manifested the way that it did, the boy was already getting better. The treatment worked, but he didn't understand why in the moment. This remains true for all of us today. Commonly, our treatments work, but we don't always know why in the moment. Sometimes we think about it later. Still spent the next 18 years of his life trying to understand what he observed in this treatment, what he did, and how and why the boy's body responded. We can all do this in our daily osteopathic practice lives, too. This case history exemplifies the skills of paying attention, thinking outside the box, and having high-level palpatory and perceptual skills in physical examination. More than having these outstanding clinical skills, still was then able to act upon his insights and discoveries and provide a novel way of approaching infectious diseases by offering osteopathic manipulation. So moving on to the fifth thematic element, key treatment and reproducibility. As I look back over 35 years of practicing osteopathy in medicine, I recall many patients with diseases that result in what I call one of those treatments. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Let me elaborate. A patient presents with a disease condition that I've never treated using osteopathic manipulation. They get better. Their condition either completely resolves or dramatically improves. Or what was before considered unmanageable for the patient becomes tolerable and much easier to deal with. The next part is tricky. Mm. Was this treatment success based upon luck or skill? That is a great question. Yeah, there's more. Was this success caused by a placebo effect or expertise? More great questions. Was the patient going to get better by themselves anyway, and the osteopathic treatment was coincidental? Right. That's one of those cases where sometimes we take too much credit when things go well and not enough credit when they don't. Right. Or, one more, Yeah. was this event a reproducible healing or a one-off miracle? Now comes the hard part of being an effective osteopath. It takes hard work to be good at what we do. For me to confirm that I can successfully treat any disease or illness, the results need to be reproducible. How many treatment successes does it take to have the confidence to state that I can treat fill-in-the-blank disease or condition? Well, more than one. Mm -hmm. A good starting point for me is 10. But that's just a starting point. I prefer 100 successful treatments of a medical condition before I say with confidence that I can treat that disease well with osteopathic manipulation. 
In this case, history still proved the effectiveness of osteopathic manipulation in the treatment of deadly infectious gastroenteritis in 17 patients. I am sure that he had high standards like I do. So over the next 25 years of his practice life, he easily treated hundreds of children with infectious gastroenteritis and found success. Full disclosure, I have never treated a child with hemorrhagic gastroenteritis like the children in this case history. Yeah, neither have I. Yeah, I would guess that not many of us who live a privileged life in modern first world cultures have the opportunity to see and treat patients in the category found in this case history. The first osteopathic treatment is what I call one of those treatments. I too have had several of one of those treatments. I've had many aha moments, especially in my first few years of practice. There were so many conditions that I had learned about in my training, but I hadn't yet had an opportunity to treat. How many of these conditions might respond to osteopathic treatment, I would ask myself. And is it the disease that's responding? Or is it this particular individual who just happens to have that disease? These are really important questions. It takes years of practice. They call it practice for a good reason. It takes years of practice to develop the discernment to have a sense of what we as osteopaths can effectively treat or not treat. Practicing osteopathy is a real-life learning laboratory. After I had seen the 10th or the 100th or the 1,000th case of something, I had a body of experience that I could use to discern, to offer a prognosis and a very educated opinion about whether or not the person and their condition might respond to osteopathic care. Bonnie's comments naturally lead us to the sixth thematic element of this case history, osteopathic growth and development. In the episode on osteopathic ways of being, we asked you to consider your growth and development both personally and professionally, as if it were guided by the same natural laws of growth and development of a child. And in this episode, we're revisiting this way of viewing the growth and development, but this time in the larger context of Andrew Taylor Still's life and osteopathy itself over time. I know that there are many of you who have trouble appreciating why the history of osteopathy is important. It seems so dated, so old-fashioned, The language is hard to understand, and it seems irrelevant to your daily life. I ask you to reconsider. Would you make fun of something that your child said when they're three or four years old? No. You would understand a simplistic childlike comment in the context of their age, and you would see how that child grows and develops over time. Let's apply this kind and generous view to our own profession. It seems to me that now osteopathy is an adult, perhaps on the verge of middle age. I think we've come a long way along the road to maturity, and I'm hoping that our listeners are developing their own appreciation for understanding how they have arrived in the modern osteopathic world. In the growth and development of osteopathy, many modern critics try to apply 21st century standards to a 19th century situation that evolved in a very different context than how we practice healthcare today. To apply today's standards to the way Andrew Taylor Still practiced osteopathy and medicine in the 1800s is considered historical bigotry and is inappropriate. Let us not engage in a battle of the centuries, 
but respect the situational context that drove the development of osteopathy as a creative approach to healthcare. Let's wrap up and s- summarize this exploration of the first osteopathic treatment. Andrew Taylor Still built the House of Osteopathy upon a firm foundation of compassion and action, attentiveness and curiosity, kindness and generosity, thinking outside of the box, experimentation, having the courage to oppose the status quo, and knowing that the growth and development or progress was essential to the developing the osteopathic approach to healthcare. As we end this episode, I would like to return to the beginning of our osteopathic origin story. Imagine walking down a street with a close friend in any city, anywhere in the world. You see a poor mother and child walking hand in hand down the street ahead of you. They are destitute. The young boy, about four years old, is wearing a tattered dress and blood is dripping down his legs onto the street, leaving a trail of blood that is a map offering a direction. Would you choose to look away, turn away, or walk away? Or would you choose to follow the path shown to you by this child and change the world? We know what Andrew Taylor still chose. What choice would you have made in this situation? You always have a choice. Thank you for listening to Osteopathy Unplugged. We have created a collection of foundational episodes free of charge. These teachings will provide an introduction to osteopathic clinical philosophy and are available wherever you get your podcasts. The ongoing collection of Osteopathy Unplugged will be released at regular intervals and will only be available by subscription at patreon.com slash osteopathyunplugged. And remember to share our podcast with a friend or colleague. A special thanks to Corey Blake for composing our theme music. We would love to hear from you. Please post comments or questions on our Facebook page or on our Patreon homepage. We trust that upcoming episodes will address your burning questions. Until next time, be well, listen deeply, and stay curious. Mm -hmm.